Hey, Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about AI a bit today. So before we start, I wanted to ask you of your uh, probability of doom, your P-doom number. On a personal level, 100%. Uh, for the world, not sure yet. That's definitely coming for us reporters. <laughs> uh, I hope I hope not uh, not too quickly. Maybe if you know in fifty years, maybe maybe that that would be a good time for me. Um, if, there, if the AI is willing to, uh, hopefully we'll schedule. have we'll, we'll have a nest egg and be retired by then. Um, we're going to be talking a bit about uh, supercomputers on the show today and their applications for AI. Um, I'm looking forward to that chat. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. Rebecca, you're just back from a reporting trip to Tennessee where you visited Oak Ridge National Lab and their supercomputer facilities there. Tell us a bit about what you saw. Yeah, so uh, in October last month, I was down in Oak Ridge in Tennessee and I got to see two of the world's fastest supercomputers. So I saw the Frontier supercomputer, which is currently the fastest supercomputer in the world, according to rankings that were just released. Um, and then I also saw Summit, which is a slightly older supercomputer, slightly not as fast, but the seventh fastest uh, supercomputer in the world. So uh, it doesn't really look like anything walking through it. It looks like a bunch of large file cabinets full of um, com computing uh, machinery. You wouldn't really know that you were looking at anything other than like a data data center but you know the the computers that i saw there are you know responsible or represent some of the you know biggest technological accomplishments of the department of energy's supercomputing program mm. I, in my mind when i think of a supercomputer I, i'm thinking of i don't know flashing lights and cool computing architecture but it's just a boring room that looks like a data center so it's it it's louder than you would think it. Uh, you, some people like wear earplugs uh, walking through it, but you know, as a kid, if I heard the term supercomputer, I imagined like some giant screen and um, you know, like some kind of like animate motherboard talking to you. I'm thinking of like Cyber Chase if you ever watched that show, but mm -hmm. that's not what it's like. It's um, you know, like a lot of just uh, machines humming away, uh, and that and that's it. Just happens to be that the architecture in those machines is is really important um and really powerful and and classifies this as a supercomputer mm. so the biden administration just issued this big new executive order on ai and supercomputers are a big part of how the white house is thinking about ai talk to us a bit about how the the computers at oak ridge fit into these plans yeah so broadly the executive order as we discussed last time on the show i was on the show did a lot of things. One of the many things it did is that it told the Department of Energy to really, really focus on artificial intelligence. The Department of Energy was already sort of focused on artificial intelligence, but the executive order kind of gave the go-ahead to really, really invest in this technology. And you know, it turns out that the DOE already has a fleet of national laboratories. Some of them have these supercomputers, and basically it provided direction to those labs and the people at those labs to prioritize and focus 
on artificial intelligence, including using the computing resources they have available, like the supercomputers, to make advancements in AI. So as the department is having its supercomputers focus on, on AI problems, tell us a bit about the types of questions they're trying to answer using these computers. So already the lab was kind of focused on, you know, solving some of the problems that, uh, you know, the humanity's interested in dealing with, like uh, using AI to model better flight technology or trying to sort of model um, medical information in order to provide new or sort of produce new insights into um, science and medicine. And, and the idea being that if you have this you know, giant computing resource and really powerful algorithms, you're able, you're going to be able to like kind of get more information out of the system. Things like that were, were already happening. Um, but now there's an interest even more on using these computing facilities for building foundational models that could have a variety of purposes. And um, also potentially as, as more supercomputers are built, you know, focusing those on AI as well. So could the department potentially be building its own kind of foundational large language model? Are we going to have a department of energy, like large language model, like sort of a, a, a chat GPT, but made by the department of energy? I think that they probably, I don't want to speak for the department of energy. I think that there's already an interest and in, there are projects looking at building language models. They're probably a little more focused on specific applications than chat GPT, like looking at kind mm. of clinical focused um, language models and, and things like that. Um, but, but certainly large models like that is something that they're very interested in. The executive order does call out foundation models as a, as a priority for the department of energy. So one of the initiatives you talk about in your story is trying to use these computers to look at medical data and better understand cancer prevalence. Tell us a bit what that project is trying to do. Yeah. So one of I, when I was down there, I got to hear about a wide range of research things they're working on. Uh, one of the ones that was really intriguing is a project that um, Oak Ridge has in coordination with the National Cancer Institute. And basically the idea is that you could collect all of this, all of these notes about um, cancer patients and and cancer, um, put them in a data set and basically use AI to study them. And the idea is like using those words to try to figure out new things about um, cancer prevalence and whatnot. So that's an example of building a language model using those supercomputer capabilities um, and, and you know trying to solve a problem that's face it, facing um, the country and the world. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it's one of the interesting things that I've been looking at recently is you know the, the like generalized AI models tr that are you know going after broadly like general artificial general intelligence are, are trying to do everything, but some of the more promising applications are, are far more narrow, like you know trying to detect rare forms of cancer using you know imagery that cancer doctors might be bad at spotting using using the naked eye, and some of these more narrow applications almost have more promise than some of the general applications. Yeah, that. And that also um, lines up with, I think, how government researchers tend to be thinking about this. And, you know, I can't, you know, speak for all of them in terms of what their interest is in terms of um, AGI. But in, I think because you have to justify why you're spending your money and how you're spending your money, there's much more of a focus on very specific applications and very specific, you know, problems that you're able to, you know, make some progress on with, with these kinds of resources. 
Yeah. Talk us through some of the challenges the Department of Energy is facing in trying to use more of their supercomputing capacity towards AI work. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the biggest one is that there aren't like a huge number of government supercomputers and there's more demand from researchers than supply in terms of, of capability. Only some of the projects that researchers want to pursue on computers like Frontier and Summit are ultimately accepted, you know, even with the foundation models that that the executive order calls out, there, there are still other things that the Department of Energy wants to focus on as well. So there's a lot of, you know, there's different focuses and they can't, um, our foci, and you can't, um, you know, do all of them at the same time to the fullest extent. Um, I think another sort of uh, challenge is they're, you know, extremely expensive. There are a lot of a lot of work to actually operate and take care of, um, which which means you can't just willy nilly build build a new one. And um, I think that that sort of um, is very clear. Walking around these facilities, a lot of a lot of work actually um, goes into them. And I think one of the other interesting challenges that came up in my our reporting, talking to um, or communicating with one supercomputing expert, is that um, AI and supercomputers, you know, the the fields are kind of like coming together and trying to answer some similar questions, but, you know, it wasn't always the case that supercomputers were going to be built to, you know, specifically serve the needs of AI. And now there's sort of like a mind shift or, or mindset shift that might need to take place with um, the sort of supercomputing resources and workforce that's available to focus more on, on artificial intelligence. That's sort of like not a given in the field. And the fourth, the next supercomputer that the department is building, I think will be more AI focused, right? One of the um, supercomputers that might be built at Oak Ridge next, I think AI is going to be a big area of focus, but I think the, you know, that's not going to be around probably for at least a few years. So um, that'll give you a sense of the timeline on that. All right, great. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for your wonderful reporting on this. And I'm sure we'll have you back on the show soon to talk more AI. Sounds great. Thanks so much. Coming up next on Safe Mode, I'm joined by Rasha Abdul-Rahim, the director of Amnesty Tech. Listeners of this show will probably be aware of commercial spyware solutions like NSO Group's Pegasus, but that particular piece of technology is just one small piece of a much broader industry. My interview with Rasha Abdul-Rahim will get into just how easy it is to buy high-grade espionage tools. That's up next on Safe Mode. I'm joined by Rasha Abdul-Rahim the director of Amnesty Tech, a project of the human rights group Amnesty International to examine and advocate on issues of digital rights. Over the past decade, an industry has sprung up, offering access to surveillance tools that were once only available to the most well-resourced intelligence agencies. Today, governments around the world have access to commercial spyware that offer highly invasive tools to monitor communications. And groups like Amnesty are at the front lines of trying to understand this industry and how the technology is being deployed. Rasha Abdul-Rahim, joining us from a cafe in West London. Welcome to Safe Mode. Thank you very much for having me. So, Rasha, I'm wondering if we might start by talking a bit about the broader commercial spyware industry. I think listeners might know about NSO Group, but the industry goes far beyond this one company that kind of occupies the public imagination, right? So from where you sit, what does the commercial spyware industry look like today? So I think... Um... I'd like to first start situating the, um, the global spyware industry um, in the fact that there's been a pervasive lack of transparency around it um, and around the use of targeted digital surveillance um, and particularly the role of um, the private sector in facilitating that, that surveillance. 
And that's really impeded our understanding um, of the industry itself, as well as you know accountability for the human rights violations that we've seen as a result of the use of an unlawful targeted surveillance. And you know, for years we've cautioned that a few hard-won insights that we've gained as, as civil society, as you know, as journalists and researchers um, regarding NSO Group, as well as a handful of other companies such as um, Hacking Team and Finfisher. We're really just the tip of the iceberg, and that's that's proven actually through the re subsequent research that we and other civil society organisations have done. Particularly, you know, in 2021, the Pegasus Project, which for, for listeners who are unaware, it's a result of a collaborative investigation that involved more than 80 journalists uh, from 17 media organisations in 10 countries, um, and was coordinated by by Forbidden Stories with the technical support of um, of Amnesty International of Amnesty Tech Security Lab, which is a lab of technologists who carry out digital forensics research. Um, and these were really Snowden scale disclosures, right, that really revealed to the public how states are using uh, targeted digital surveillance tools supplied by one of the industry's most prominent actors, NSO Group, um, to, to target human rights defenders, uh, politicians, even heads of state, you know, showing that the reach of this technology um, is, is, you know, everywhere that nobody is, is safe from, from, from its reach. Um, and fast forward to 2023 with the Predator Files investigation, which was led by the European Investigative Collaborations, EIC media network, again, with the technical support of Amnesty International, we see again sort of how far the industry's tentacles have spread um, and how effective actually EU regulation has been at controlling the, the industry. So just to circle back to your question, what, what this has shown us um, is that human rights abuse is a feature of the industry, it's not a bug. Um, spyware, as intrusive as, as Pegasus and Predator, um, are, you know, they're designed to impact the right to privacy, they're highly invasive forms of spyware, um, and they are fundamentally incompatible with human rights, which is why we're calling for a ban on, on this type of spyware. So a huge lack of transparency, uh, scandal after scandal showing the human rights abuses related to the misuse of this technology, yet governments still is still dragging their feet with regards to effectively regulating the industry. So yeah, let's, let's focus on that regulatory effort for a second. So the European Union has tried to regulate commercial spyware. The United States has somewhat tried to rein in the industry, in particular by focusing on NSO Group, which was blacklisted after a, a series of high-profile incidents. Yeah. Uh, the straw that broke the camel's back from Washington's perspective, I think, was when NSO technology was used to surveil U.S. diplomats, which um, really generated a lot of momentum and outrage in Washington to, to blacklist the company. What's been the effect of this regulatory push on commercial spyware firms and the industry at large? So I think we've seen, as you mentioned, we've seen some some positive um, developments. Um, but I think we've seen a lack of effective enforcement of existing regulatory efforts. Um, and this, this was really shown through the Predator Files um, disclosures. Um, you know, Intellectual Alliance markets itself as an EU regulated company. Uh, however, uh, it was able to evade EU export controls to 
export its technologies to countries that used it to violate human rights. Um, and, you know, the fact that uh, these export controls were circumvented partly through the opaque corporate structures and entities of um, Intellectual Alliance makes it clear that um, EU regulations, in, in specific the, e, the EU dual use export regulation, has significant gaps and shortcomings that must be addressed. Um, and, you know, two years after the publication, there was a recast of the, of the dual use regulation. It's not been transparently or robustly um, implemented. And so I think what scandal after scandal has shown us is that states aren't actually very serious about effectively regulating this technology. There's a lot of positive signals, there's a lot of positive words, but the action, the really sort of decisive and resolute action is, is lacking. And until effective regulation is in place, um, that means banning highly invasive forms of spyware like Predator and Pegasus and uh, imposing a moratorium on the export of other types of technologies. Until those are in place, we're going to continue seeing scandals unfold. Um, so we really do need decisive action from from political leaders and from the EU specifically, we want to see effective implementation of the EU dual use regulation, as well as an investigation to understand how Intellectual Alliance was able to export its highly invasive spyware to, to countries that then used it to, to violate human rights. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about this company, Intellexa Alliance. This is a commercial spyware company. Recently, you published a big report on them. Kind of step back a little bit. Tell us about this company, what it does, its client base, and the position that they occupy in the industry. Sure. So it's um, it advertises Intellexa Alliance advertises itself as an EU-based and regulated company, um, and the entities that make up the alliance span various jurisdictions, um, both within the EU and outside the EU. Um, so it has um, entities based in Greece, Ireland, France, Germany, Czech Republic, Cyprus, Hungary, Switzerland, Israel, North Macedonia, and the UAE. And it's a very sort of um, complex and ever morphing set of, of, of structures, um, which is you know also constantly rebranding and, and evolving. And these opaque and complex corporate structures make it, in a sense, easier for these companies to evade accountability, transparency, and, and government regulation. It's something that we also saw with NSO Group when we did an investigation into NSO's um, corporate structure. It's so diverse and disparate that it you know, almost makes it impossible at times to understand who is approving export licenses, where is the technology being exported from, um, what regulations um, are the exports subject to, which jurisdictions. So I think this is a sort of pattern that we've seen with, um, with surveillance companies, that they're deliberately sort of opaque and complex in their structures in order to sort of evade um, detection and, and accountability. And so in terms of um, the clients of um, Intellectual Alliance, um, the investigation by IEC consortium of journalists found that uh, Intellectual Alliance products had been sold to at least 25 countries, including Switzerland, Austria, and Germany, and other countries um, that it's 
um, exported to are in the Middle East and in, in Africa and in, uh, in Asia. So it's exporting to sort of every region in, in, in the world. Some of those, so when we talk about intellects and clients here, right, it's some of these states have better human rights protections than others. They have perhaps some rule of law components to try to you know, govern their use. Can you talk at all about how these tools have been used um, in countries with perhaps less positive human rights records? Yeah, sure. So um, the reason why uh, these exports have been concerning is, is that a lot of the, the countries where the, these transfers were made pose a high likelihood of human rights violations um, due to past in instances of, of surveillance in those countries or an absence of um, you know, effective domestic surveillance safeguards that could prevent these technologies from being misused, especially against uh, civil society journalists and, and, and sort of opposition politicians. Now, Amnesty International carried on its own investigation into a previously undisclosed um, targeted surveillance operation by one of the customers of Intellectus Predator Spyware with connections to, to Vietnam. So our investigation showed that agents of the Vietnamese authorities or persons acting on their behalf um, may be behind this spyware campaign that, that, this, um, that we uncovered. And those targeted as part of the, the spyware operation included a Berlin-based independent news website, political figures in the European Parliament, European Commission, academic researchers, and think tanks. Um, and so we, what we found was uh, there was a, an, a, an account on, on, on X, a formerly Twitter, um, which between February and June 2023 targeted at least 15, 50 sorry, social media accounts belonging to 27 individuals and 23 institutions. Um, using the, the predator spyware. And those uh, targeted, though not necessarily infected, included those political figures that, that I mentioned, um, but it also included um, a uh, Vietnamese human rights defender um, who's, was, uh, who, who's also a journalist um, who's living in, in Berlin um, and is, is an editor of uh, the editor in chief of a Vietnamese language um, news publication. So this this news publication was targeted with predator spyware, sent as a one, as a one click attack over over X. Um, and it, it, this is just one of a, a series of examples of offline and online repression that this journalist has faced over the years. Um, and you know he he actually told Amnesty International that you know you can't just sell these kinds of surveillance technologies to countries like Vietnam. Um, and he framed it in a really interesting way that, you know, this Western software, Western hardware attacks um, uh, are used in, in Germany and, and Europe, European countries. So it not only harms the, the, the freedom of, of the press and freedom of expression for people back home in Vietnam, but also for, for people in, in, you know, who, who live in exile in, in Europe. Some of the technical methods that the spyware uses in order to gather the information that it's after is pretty nefarious. You, you describe what you call a strategic ISP infection that carries out what you uh, say is a, a zero-click attack through HTTP browsing. I'm wondering if you might describe a little bit the, the strategic ISP infection route and the way that Intellexa seems to be subverting internet service providers in order to hoover up targeted data. 
Sure. So our investigation um, covered targeted surveillance technologies and um, indiscriminate mass surveillance um, tools as well. So in terms of targeted surveillance technologies, these include highly invasive mobile spyware like Predator, which can be delivered to devices using either one-click attacks or zero-click um, attacks. Um, and Intellectual Alliance also offers various techniques to install the spyware through tactical attacks, which um, enable the targeting of devices in, in close proximity. And then there are the strategic infection methods, which, are, which have also been developed, operated and marketed by the Intellectual Alliance. And what these methods do is they allow a state actor to deliver what's called a sort of silent infection attempt um, to users of cooperating internet service providers or across a whole country if the spyware operator has direct access to internet traffic. So these strategic infection systems sort of constitute mass surveillance tools because they require access to large scale internet traffic to target and affect individuals at scale. And I think it's worth emphasizing that, that this is the type of technology that authoritarian regimes are increasingly using to monitor large populations. The architecture that you're describing is very similar to, for example, the regime that the Russian government has in place to monitor um, the domestic web there. And the fact that a commercial company like this is offering this technology mm. for sale is making this type of repressive technology far more available than it ever has been before. Absolutely. And the fact that the uh, that, that it's available in, in so many countries and has been provided to so many countries shows that the industry is, is not, not only poorly regulated, but it's, you know, it's, it's out of control. Um, and it needs urgent reform. If you talk to folks in law enforcement, not on the mass surveillance side, but on the kind of targeted investigation side, you know, they'll say that mobile devices are increasingly encrypted as are communications and that investigations are harder to carry out than ever before. And that this means that really the only way to carry out effective investigations is to compromise devices that are being used by criminal suspects. I'm wondering, do you think that the targeted tools that you describe from companies like Intellexa, do they have a legitimate role to play in law enforcement investigations? Not the type of, um, of highly invasive spyware that I described um, and, and that um, predator spyware is um, for, for several reasons. Um, firstly, because the way that um, Predator works is uh, it's, it can access unlimited amounts of data on, on a device and it can't be, um, it can't be independently uh, uh, audited. So once Predator has infiltrated a device, it has basically unlimited access to the microphone, to the camera, to all of the data uh, such as contacts, messages, photos, videos, while the user is entirely unaware. And um, this type of technology is, it, it constitutes indiscriminate mass surveillance. Um, and at present, you know, as I mentioned, it can't be, um, it can't be independently audited and it can't be um, limited to, uh, its functionality can't be limited to a sort of a specific user or a specific use. So when it comes to these, the targeted spyware that we're talking about here, 
they're infecting devices using vulnerabilities in software and hardware. I'm wondering if you might speak to what you think the cybersecurity industry should be doing better to address the threat of commercial spyware. Yeah, so I think I would perhaps reframe the the question and, and, and put, put the onus more on, on, on governments to to regulate. There's certainly things that the spyware industry could, could be doing, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk through those in a second. But I think really the onus is on governments to, to regulate the, the industry effectively. Um, and one way of doing that is, is, as I've mentioned, is to enforce a ban on the use of, of highly invasive spyware like um, Predator and, and Pegasus. The second thing that governments should be doing is to legally require surveillance companies to carry out human rights due diligence in relation to their global operations, including the use of their products and services. So what that means is um, companies need to be doing a human rights risk assessment before they're selling to um, governments or, or you know, government agencies to, to be able to address the potential harms of the, the use of their or misuse of, of their of their technologies. Um, but essentially, uh, companies like Intellexo Alliance should stop the production and sale of highly invasive spyware like Predator because these types of, of highly invasive spyware are fund fundamentally incompatible with, with human rights and they, they constitute a tool of, of mass surveillance, which is uh, never proportionate nor, nor necessary um, for, uh, for, for use. So, so companies like Intellexa Alliance and, and NSO Group, for that matter, um, need to provide compensation uh, to victims of of unlawful surveillance, as well as other forms of, of effective redress. Rasha Abdul-Rahim, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate you sharing your perspective on commercial spyware industry. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.